Welcome to Crosspoint this morning. We're glad you guys are here with us. And uh, um, this is a, this is a peculiar Sunday for me in particular. I have all three of my kids. My wife went on the uh, retreat, and I had to recruit my mom to come help me this morning. And uh, I'm so thankful for parents. Uh, and and boy, do I miss my wife. I'm so glad though. And, and today we're talking about um, really a lot of next generation disciple making and what happens when we don't pass on our faith to our children. We're going to see a generation of people who have forgotten who God is. And I was thinking about that this weekend and I thought, uh, every generation has to relearn. Every generation has to relearn who God is or learn, I guess, for the first time. And so this morning as we, as we come, as, uh, if you're here with family, if you're here, if you have little kids, big kids, I don't care if, you, if you're related to someone here, I, I hope that somebody here standing next to you has spoken into your life about who God is. And if that's not the case, we're glad you're here today. 
and we want you to know that we're going to declare who God is together this morning and and just the importance of, of passing that on to the next generation because one day we will all be gone right and then they'll be left to pass that on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation God is faithful from generation to generation he's our heavenly father and he remains the same and so we need to pass that on and we need to share that with our children amen 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 in this time of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe in this broken generation when all is dark you help us see there is only one salvation we believe we believe we believe in god the father we believe in jesus christ we believe in the holy spirit and he's given us new life we believe in the crucifixion we believe that he conquered hell we believe in the resurrection and he's coming back
morning we praise you for who you are we thank you that you truly are faithful generation after generation you remain the same and this morning god i pray that as we uh as we talk about children who uh are are orphaned by their own parents as we talk about a generation who has has forgotten you lord would you remind us this morning of your goodness and your faithfulness and god would you give us a heart to reach the lost not just in our own generation, but in the next generation, and to build up the generation beneath us, God, in your ways. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, Cross Point. I was told to smile, so I'm smiling. All right. So, good morning. I'm here to uh, not... I am definitely not one of the pastors. My name is Micah. I am here to uh, talk about Compassion, Compassion International. If you haven't ever heard of Compassion International, let me give you the 30-second or so overview. Compassion is a worldwide organization it's in 26 different countries, four continents. They provide uh, education for kids who are poor and destitute and uh, vocational training where they teach them how to cook, clean, teach them proper hygiene. Usually at the school that they're at is in partnership with a local church. It's able to uh, provide a clean, safe environment. Usually, sometimes there's actually a well on site there where that's actually at. And so these local churches and the pastors have to actually keep track of the kids. There's a high expectation for these kids to be there, uh, a lot of things that they actually have to do. So that's compassion. That's the quick overview. And we've done this for quite a while here at Crosspoint where somebody comes up and talks about compassion. We usually do it one of two different ways. Um, the first way is to kind of tell a personal story, you know, um, about your child that you're, you sponsor. This is our child. Her name is Sandrid. I know it's very difficult to see. She's very cute. I promise you. Um, you know, we had Sandrid now. We had Daisy before her. And so if you have a compassion child, great. Just hang out for a little bit and uh, write them this afternoon because they're always looking. They're never, uh, I've never heard about uh, somebody saying, oh, I write my compassion kid too much, so. Write your compassion kid. Uh, another thing that we've done, we've, we talked about there's eight ch- kids that we sponsor back in Sun Chasers. So that's a range from every class has a sponsored kid that they actually get to write to and talk to. These, this is a great learning lesson for the children in the back because they get to hear about uh, a child their age or very close to their age that they're actually able to pray for. They hear stories about it when we give an extra gift for the child's birthday. They hear stories about what that kid bought. Maybe they bought trousers, a T-shirt, a bread, a candle. 
those types of things are, are really the uh, stories that help our kids understand a little bit more. Another thing that we kind of maybe have done is shown you a video, a very touching, emotional video of a child who actually gets, this is the response of this young girl when she actually hears that she got a, a compassion child. This is a 30-second little blip of a six-minute video that we'll put on, on the Facebook's, um, Crosspoint's Facebook page. I work for a company called CloudPoint, and I always get CloudPoint and CrossPoint mixed up. It's awful. So anyway, uh, these kids, these are, this shows a real, uh, real life, actually, uh, maybe it was dark to see, I'm sorry if it was. Uh, it shows a real life uh, example of, of a kid that was actually impacted by this and what that is. These are real children, real hopes, real lives, real families that are a part of it. Um, there's also a lot of kids. There's over, over 2,000 kids waiting for a compassion sponsor. And this is, they're waiting, and the ones that we have back, they've been waiting. This is a one-to-one. Compassion is a one-to-one. You are the only sponsor of that child. There's not a bunch of envelopes at the, another church for this Compassion Sunday just like ours. There's, you are the, that child's only sponsor. So they have to actually take them off the websites to send them to us. So it is a one-to-one relationship. Those of us maybe who are not quite emotional but maybe more left-brained, uh, less emotion, who have to be told to smile, those types of things. Uh, maybe you want to know facts and figures. Maybe you just want to just, I want to make sure that my money that I'm donating to this charity is going to be used for a good intentions and good purposes. There's lots of, you know, charities out there that you have to kind of check in on. So I want to make sure. How do you do that? What do you do? So, um, what is the Charity Navigators? Charity Navigator is a, uh, another um, organization that actually rates charities. They help you rate charities, and there's uh, over 3,000 across the spectrum of, of charitable giving that, that they rate. Charity Navigator gives a grade, like, much like in school, that Compassion International has been getting a grade about 90 or 91 or 92 over the last few years. And right now they're sitting at a 91. That's an A rating. In the top 10 largest charities that Charity Navigator gives, that's the highest rating that they've given to a, a church organization, a, a, an organization whose explicit purpose is to share the gospel with people. So that's a very consistent. I know that there are, there are organizations very close by, actually, that have a much higher rating. And there are also organizations that have an express purpose of, of telling people about the gospel. But those two together, compassion is the largest for that. And there's other ratings, too, that you can kind of see. Um, and if you don't, maybe you don't want to trust another third-party organization to do your checking for you, if you get on Compassion's website, there are three things that you can look at. You can look at their annual report for past years. You can actually look on and find their 990. If you, just, you got done with tax season and you still want more taxes, you can go read their 990. You can actually read an independent audit report if you even know what that looks like. I've now, I, this is the first time I even saw an independent audit report. So if you want to do your own checking, you can go do that too. It's a very transparent organization. Just the facts and figures. Um, Compassion International brings down 700, over $775 million a year. Almost 81 or almost 82 cents of every dollar from Compassion actually goes towards the kids. It goes towards the ministry organization. If you want to know about effect, effectiveness, they commissioned their own study. They commissioned a study to actually go back and check to see how effective their ministry is. They interviewed almost 2,000 
former Compassion students, they were their Compassion kids from 1982 to 1992 to see what they're doing now. And they found out that these guys are more likely to stay, have stayed in school to get secondary education and to get, actually get degrees to get white-collar jobs in their, where they're at. Not, I'm not saying they come over to the U.S. and get white-collar jobs. Where they're at, where they're located. They become community leaders. They become church leaders. They become pastors. So what this really is doing is being an effective ministry in the money that you give to these children is being used in much larger organizations. It's not just providing food and water and shelter. All right. All that aside, those are two different ways, but I'm not going to tell you about either of those. I'm going to tell you about a, a story. It has really on its face nothing to do with compassion. So I was lucky enough to go with a friend of mine who is, um, he's taken his faith a little bit more seriously in the last 18 to 24 months. He kind of, uh, he's kind of getting serious about it. Um, he's felt convicted about that. So he's, he's, he invited me down. Sorry, Justice. He invited me down uh, to where he's at, and he um, invited me to his uh, men's retreat at his church. It was a, a men's conference. It was, it's a big church in Dallas. And so I went down there, and he said, um, you know, we're driving along, and we had a day of visiting and hanging out with him, and, and we're driving to the, to the conference, and, he, and he, he's getting nervous as he's getting closer. And he just kind of blurts out, I'm going to raise my hand to the first song. And so, you know, I, this is a guy that I've... I've I've known since junior high, you know. I you know, ate at his house and all that kind of stuff. And we've been friends for a long time. He's actually the last person I was actually in a physical fist fight with, you know. And so it was on his front lawn of his house. It was over a Nintendo game. It's not over anything admirable at all. So I did what any long-term friend did. I laughed at him because it was an awkward thing to say, you know, in the middle of a, uh, of a car ride. And I said, okay. And and he went on to explain, because this friend of mine doesn't do anything without thinking. And I knew that. So what was he doing? What was he, was, he, was, he went on to explain, you know, when, I, when my kids were little and they wanted me to pick them up, they would walk up to me and raise their hands. And when, you know, raising your hands is the international sign of, you know, surrender, right? I said, okay. He said, so it's about me obeying the call of God to, to surrender. It's about, it's my physical demonstration of how I'm trying to release my, all of my assumptions and all of my, you know, everything else in his life. He said, it's, it's something that I feel convicted to do, whether or not I feel it's not about the music, it's not about the songs, it's not about the, you know, anything, the environment of what's going on. It's about me obeying God. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Awesome. Awesome. So we went to the conference. Uh, he knows like two people at the church. There's thousands of guys there, and we didn't see his, his two friends. So we just kind of go in, and we're standing there, and, and, you know, I'm doing what I do. At, you know, when you go to a church, you're visiting a church, you're looking around at things, you know. It's like, oh, where do they put their lights? And there's the big cameras and all that, you know. All that kinda, you're just kind of observing, and, you know, the music starts. I'm not even thinking about it. And, you know, I, you've, I felt it before I, I knew that he had, had risen his hands up in the air. And this is something that I've always kind of struggled with because of that whole emotion block that I've got. I've always kind of struggled with that, right? So when he did, I just felt released. And as, when the, the chorus came back around again, I joined him. And it was such an emotional release for me to take that step of obedience that we're called to, honestly, and so as far as obedience, as far as compassion goes, as far as all that kind of stuff, I'm really saying it's about obedience. 
It's about actually just taking the step to, to obey God. Because there's no real searching God's will about taking care of the poor and taking care of orphans and taking care of widows. You don't really have to think about whether or not God wants us to do that. And it's not exactly, um, this isn't a question of, of reaching down our American hand and giving the poor destitutes money. Because if, if, that's, if you think that God needs us to reach and help people, you don't really understand the sovereignty of God. He'll get it done, with or without us. But it's about our obedience in that. There's really nothing to do with almost the kids. They are, they, what they get is an effect, is the benefits of our obedience. These are just some of the verses where it talks about helping the poor, the widows, the orphans, the homeless, the foreigners. It talks about sojourners. Sojourners in a common or in a more of a modern context would be migrants, refugees. Those are the types of things that we're called to help. Those are the types of people that cross across our land that we're called to help. We're commanded, really. And this is the simple fact of it. When we know what we're supposed to do, when you know what the right thing is that you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. When you know that it's a sin of omission, when you know what the right thing is to do and don't, that's a sin of omission. And we're not talking about taking a part of your tithe and shaving off a little bit of your tithe and giving it to compassion. We're talking about an offering. We've, we've been in the Old Testament. We understand what offerings are. A sacrifice. It's about a sacrifice. It's not about part of your offering or part of your tithe. So, if, whether or not you call it an obligation, whether or not, I'm the, I'm, this is a, uh, I'm not a, <laughs> this isn't a guilt trip, you know. I'm talking about obedience. When I learned obedience, my friend invited me down to check out his church. I was there as the big Christian to go down and help my friend learn about if this is a good church for him. But what he didn't understand and invited me down was God had a lesson for me. Of, about obedience. And he helped me learn that lesson of obedience. All right? Now, I, I've heard the things. There's a lot of organizations. Heck, there's people hungry in Peoria. Why don't you give your money to Peoria? Fine. Do it. What are you doing about that? If you want to keep your money domestic, great. Do that. But do something. Take that step of, of obedience and do something. That's the points. We have the opportunity right now for compassion. The kids in the back, on the board, you know, there's, there's laying them out. That's the, that's the idea. The opportunity, the call is to do something. The opportunity is compassion today. Thanks. Thanks, Micah. Micah, for uh, leading us through that time. If you have a Bible, get to uh, the book of Judges. Right after Deuteronomy, right after Joshua, is the book of Judges, and uh, as you're getting there, we're going to be here for about uh, the next four weeks, and so as you're getting there, I just want to share some Crosspoint family news with you so we can be uh, aware and be praying. Uh, since last year, we've had two families uh, battling uh, brain cancer, uh, Bob and Dolores Schaefer and Harlan and Patty Pearson, and uh, Harlan and Bob were diagnosed um, last year, earlier last year, and um, uh, neither man is doing very well right now. Over the past year, they have... Um, really walked through this with a lot of hope, a lot of endurance, a lot of perseverance. Um, it's been an honor to be able to walk alongside them, but, uh, but neither man is doing very well right now, both on hospice. And so just be um, praying for them um, and encouraging them. As you know, 
the Schaefers, the Bachmans, the Pearsons, and those families. And so I want to pray for them now, and then we'll get into um, Judges. So, uh, Father God, we, uh, we love you, and I pray that uh, just for a spirit of endurance and hope uh, for, for these families. Thank you that, uh, as First Peter reminds us, that because of the resurrection, we have a living hope in Christ um, that doesn't change with circumstances, that doesn't change in the midst of suffering, um, we're grateful for the way that these families have trusted in you um, throughout all these months and how they continue to trust in you. And so help us as the body of Christ, the family of God, to come alongside to encourage and pray for and hold them up to you and to your um, goodness and to your greatness and to your ability to, to not only hear our prayers but to answer and to be near these households, Lord. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're about halfway through our series, The Promised Land, and we finish up at the end of May. And one of my hopes for you, uh, and what I'm hearing from you, is that as we're journeying through the Old Testament, as, is, uh, as we're preaching through, let's say, the book of Judges over the next four weeks, that some of you are saying, all right, I want to read the book of Judges. I never read the book of Judges. Let's, let's get into that. And you're reading that the other six days of the week. And that's super encouraging to me because on Sunday mornings, we're not hitting every single verse, uh, but I pray that you are as you're into the Scripture. So as we begin this book, and maybe as you begin it, reading it uh, throughout the week, I want to show this overview of the book of Judges to give us an idea of, of how it fits into the larger scale and where this book goes and to kind of give us some encouragement as we begin this journey. So watch this. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not 
happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a God, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole 
hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Pastor and author uh, Timothy Keller says this: If you're looking for a, um, if you're looking to feel warm and fuzzy, he says, I wouldn't recommend the Book of Judges. Maybe you caught that. Um, into this condition of sin, it will become so evident that the people need a king and a savior. That without godly leadership, the people will struggle and they will rebel. That if left simply to themselves, it won't go well. And so, with that thought, it it points to. King David, who will come someday, and we will look at him later this year, and it will eventually point to the King of Kings, Jesus, who will come to rule his people with uh, faithfulness and love and, um, and just uh, setting his people free from sin. So as the book of Judges opens up, we find that not all the promised land has been conquered, that some of the Canaanites who had dwelled there remain there, and so the Israelites are called to, uh, to go up and to take this land and the first couple of verses of Judges starts with this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So the Lord doesn't appoint a king, but does appoint a tribe to take the lead here. And as the appoint, uh, appointment of uh, Judah, that points us forward to uh, David. It points us forward to Jesus, both who come from the line of Judah. The book of Matthew in the New Testament, which wants its readers to uh, tie back to the Jewish line of Jesus, all right, tie back to Father Abraham. The book of Matthew opens up with verse 1 saying this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Judah and his brothers, and on and on it goes, and I won't read the whole genealogy to you this morning, but all of that points to this this Jesus and how Jesus is tied back to the family of the Jews, tied back to the Old Testament. So even in this little uh, minor detail of Judah, we think, oh, what, what's that mean? Or what, what's the significance of that? Even there, we see it pointing forward 
pointing forward to a king and a savior who will come from the line of Judah, who, will, who has been given the land into his hand. And so how does it go? How does this go when Judah begins to take the lead? Well, if you read in chapter 1, uh, that even though the success kind of came to the people initially to drive out the inhabitants, the overall idea is that they kept falling short of driving out the Canaanites completely. Verse 19 says this, And the Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 21 and 27 and 28 and 29 and 30 and 31 all say the same idea, and you should read it this week, of this, they couldn't drive out the inhabitants. Or they drove out some, but not all, and so they began to live right next to the Canaanites, right next to the people who were, they were called to drive out of the land. Verse uh, 34 even says that the tribe of Dan, and the tribe of Dan was, this was their inheritance. This was the land that they were to be taken, or they, they were to be given, and the enemy drives them out of the land that they were intended to inherit. That's verse 34. So on the surface, victory. But underlying that, after a closer look, we see God's people not completely driving out the enemy that they were called to move out. And isn't that the temptation that we face as Christ followers? Not geographically, not moving people out of a geographic space, but spiritually speaking, the territory of our hearts and our minds, if you will, to put to death or to put off the things of our old sin nature, the pride, the lust, the greed, the apathy, the selfishness, And sometimes we fall short of that total conquest, if you will. We go, well, can we hold on to this or that? Do I really have to put this to death in my life? Listen, in Christ and through the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit, the sin's already been put to death. It holds no power over you if you're in Christ. But the question is, do you agree with God on that? Are you willing to agree with God and say, yes, Lord, this has no place in my life, so I repent? I turn from pursuing that sin, and I agree with you, Lord, that you're far better, far more glorious and more worthy and more satisfying than this sin that I am tempted to chase after. What needs to be driven out of your heart? What needs to be driven out of your heart? Where do you need to ask the Lord, by your spirit and by your power, Lord, not mine, drive this enemy of my soul and my life out of my life, out of my mind? Don't let it linger any longer. The question is not if he can do it. The question is if you and I are willing to surrender, saying, Lord, have your way. Have your way. To walk in a posture of humility and dependence and reverence, saying, Lord, change me. Transform me. Maybe on the surface, everything seems to be fine in your life. Us Christian folk are really good at this, right? We put on this great display, especially between Uh, the hours of 10 and about 11.05 or 11.10 on Sunday mornings. We can put on this incredible display of, hey, everything seems to be fine. How's life? Good. Crumbling. It's good, though. It's good. This tendency that we allow sin to kind of still lurk in the dark corners of our heart and life. Listen, there's freedom in walking in the light of our Savior. It's only when we walk in the light that we have this rest-filled, joy-filled fellowship with our Lord and with one another. And can I tell you this? This is a safe place to walk in the light. Some of you have tried to walk in the light among believing friends maybe, and it didn't go well for you. 
it didn't go well for you because they didn't want anything to do with your mess. Right? That's not Christ. That's not our Lord and Savior. This is a safe place to walk in the light, and it'd be a, a joy and honor and privilege to be able to walk with you, pray with you, encourage you as you move something into the light of the gospel of God's grace. For the Israelites, they were not driving the enemy completely out, and by doing so, they were over, t- over time allowing the testimony and the way of life the, of the Canaanites to influence their way of life. This nation was to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, reflecting the goodness and truth of God to the world around them. But by falling short of that, of driving them out, they would end up being just like the Canaanites. So instead of leading the Canaanites to worship the one true God, they were being led by the Canaanites to turn from worshiping the one true God and worship the things of this world. As Christ followers, we're, we are to a people that are called out. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 refers back to this, this section of the Old Testament, and it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus tells us that we've been sent into the world. We are not to be of the world, but we are sent into the world. When we give our lives to Christ and receive his spirit, our identities are made new. So this world is now not our home. So instead of living for the temporary and the here and now and what's going to satisfy me right now, we live in light of eternity and we help others to do the same thing. We live as a people who once lived in darkness but now are walking in the light because we've received mercy. As the adult study guide for this week, it said this, God calls us to be distinct from the world, not merely so we can be different, but so that we can make a difference. Here in Judges, God's people were making these small compromises along the way, and we are tempted to do the exact same thing, to allow bitterness to kind of grow in our heart and think, ah, it'll, it'll be fine, it won't consume me, and I, I, can, I can kind of keep it over here, and eventually it does. And instead of becoming warm and tender, you become cold and hard. And, oh, I love God. Really, I have no idea by judging by this. I had no idea, Right? Or maybe, maybe it's a compromise on greed and contentment. And over time, you find yourself giving less and less to the Lord, less and less to the, to the storing up treasure in heaven. And you find yourself giving more and more to yourself or more and more to the temporary things of this world. Or maybe this, it's compromise as a husband or wife or as a single man or woman. And you make, this, make these seemingly really small compromises regarding sexual faithfulness and purity. And then you find yourself one day going, how in the world did I land here? How did I break my marriage vows? Or if I'm single, how did I find myself in this dating relationship that began so well, but now it's consumed by secret, secret sin? Little compromises, right? And yet I will tell you, if you're in that boat, the goodness and the grace and the power of God is greater. It's never too late to walk in the light. The light and truth sets us free. The compromises of the Israelites led to this divided loyalty. They were to worship their God above all else. But over the course of time, they exchanged that worship of God for the worship of self. So where is this going to lead the Israelites? Where is this going to go? Well, that takes us to chapter 2, starting in verse 7, which in a sense is going to echo back to the days of Joshua and draw this contrast between that previous generation and this new generation. 
that didn't drive out the enemy completely. So verse, start in verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And we'll stop there for a second. So in the time of Joshua, during his leadership of 50 plus years, the people served the Lord. They'd seen and heard the great work that the Lord had done in Israel's past. The miracles, protection, faithfulness, leading of, of God. Joshua passes away and is buried. And then this tribe of Judah begins to take the lead. The people begin to drive out the enemy, but they keep falling short of doing that. And then the second half of verse 10 says this very unsettling statement. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So in the days of Joshua, the people served the Lord. But in this new generation who'd made all these compromises, who didn't drive out the enemy completely, the people not only didn't serve the Lord, they didn't even know the Lord. They didn't know of the greatness and the love of God, the work of God in the past. They didn't fear the Lord. They didn't live in awe of Him. In the course of one generation, it goes from everyone served the Lord to they didn't even know the Lord. So for a generation that doesn't know the Lord, what's the result? Where does this go? Verse 11, and the, people, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This generation doesn't know the Lord. And as a result, they completely reject the Lord of the previous generation. They abandon Him. They turn and worship the gods of the Canaanites as people who have been made in the image and likeness of God. We are designed by God to be worshipers. So the question is, is not if we will worship. The question is who we will worship. What will we worship? We will worship from birth to death. The question is, who or what do we worship in that time? There's no middle ground here. There's no, well, they didn't worship uh, the God of Israel, but they didn't worship other gods. No, there, there's no middle ground here. Not at all. It's, it's one or the other. This generation didn't know God, and so they turned and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They turned to idols, which was the exact opposite of what the Lord had called them to do, especially in the Ten Commandments. We see no other idols before them. That's, we see this command. The previous generation knew and served the Lord. This new generation didn't know the Lord. How could that happen? It's because the former generation who served the Lord didn't make disciples of the new generation. They didn't pass on their faith. They didn't pass along the stories of God that which would reveal His incredible character which would cause this new generation to worship and serve God. The call to make disciples doesn't just show up in Matthew 28. It's all throughout Scripture, including right here. And here we see the negative effects of parents who in one generation neglected their God-given responsibility and privilege to pass on their faith, to make disciples of the next generation. God has called this nation. He called them in Deuteronomy 6, words that we are to live by as well. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is 
Lord our God, the Lord, Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It hasn't even gotten to kids yet. It shall be on your heart, my heart. You shall Then you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the road, or when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We share this verse anytime we talk about um, parents dedicating their children because it's so clear here that the Lord says to parents, listen, if you're going to teach your children, you first have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You can't expect your children to have the commands of God written upon their heart if your heart remains indifferent or your heart remains cold and stone-like before the Lord. For those of you who are parents in here, or maybe you will be someday, it's God's design and His plan A. His plan A. Not His plan B, not His plan C. His plan A, that you would not only worship and serve Jesus, but if you've been blessed with children, you'd help those children to do the same. As a church, we partner with you as disciple makers. But one or two hours a week is not going to offset what does or doesn't happen at home. Parents, don't just hope your children are going to understand the good news of Jesus. I kind of hope they're kind of catching it. And Be intentional. Be purposeful. Engage. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that the good news of Jesus is of first importance that we are to pass on. Well, I don't know about you. We've been parents now for nearly 17 years. It's a, it's a constant competition about what is first importance in our household. Because here's sometimes as a, as a parent, um, we lift up academics, we lift up athletics, we lift up arts, music, we lift up the way of, of work, and here's, let me pass on my trade to you or pass on this skill to you. We lift these things up as first importance. We look at our schedules, we look at our money. And they are of first importance to us. We may not say that, but that is how we're living. And Paul makes it so clear. The gospel is of first importance. Does it mean these things are worthless? Not at all. We've, we've battled these for 17 years about what really takes priority. And we'll continue to do that over the next few years. But what's truly first important? Of first importance in your, in your household? We make disciples of a lot of different things. Our primary responsibility is to make disciples of Jesus. Not of a trade, not of a skill, not of academics, not of any of that. It's all important, but it all gets trumped. It all gets trumped. So as parents, are are we living this out? I don't think we are sometimes. I think we're prioritizing so many things that are light and momentary and temporary. And we're falling into the cycle of the judges. Your children are watching your walk and your talk. They're watching to see if this God that you're saying, I really want you to love and worship this God. They're watching to see if you really are worshiping and loving this God. 
How is this impacting your way of life? Not just your Sunday morning routine. How is this impacting how you work, how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your ex-spouse, how you relate to family, how you, how you love your neighbor? Parents, do you know the Lord personally? Do you know Him intimately? Is He your Father in heaven? And some of you might be like, well, that, this generation before me didn't disciple me. So I don't know how this goes down. I have no track to run on. You're not alone in that. That's the course of a lot of our lives here at Crosspoint. First generation Christians, I would say. But don't use that excuse then to not to do the exact same thing to, to the generation after you that happened to you. Break that cycle of a lack of disciple making. Follow Jesus alongside your kids, no matter their age. You don't have to be a hundred steps ahead of them. You don't have to have some degree on your wall. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to allow those commands to be continually written upon your heart, changing your heart, transforming your life and your mind. Again, the first step of the disciple maker is simply to love God. And when your kids ask you something that you don't know, it's happened to me, right? It's just like, I don't know. Right? What do you say to them? Husbands, fathers, you say, go ask your mom. Go ask your mom. Because I don't know. But she'll know because she's mom. Right? No, you don't say that. You say, I don't know. It's a revolutionary sentence. It'll be freeing for your humility and your pride. All right? For your pride, it'll be freeing. It'll be captivating for your, humil- for your humility. You say, I don't know. Let's find out. Not just, I don't know. I don't know. No, it, God didn't intend for, uh, like, we don't know. This is, this is clear. This is sufficient. I don't know. Let's find out. Let's talk about it. And then you're training them. We're going to go long today. We're, um, Micah, no, Jason, it's me. Um, um, you're training them to know how to do it when they leave your home. Because if, if, if they just run to you with all the answers... You've you got to train them to know how to find the answer on their own. We're uh, 16 months from one of ours um, launching out. 16 months. It feels like she was 16 months old not that long ago. It goes quickly. So make disciples now, not later. Invest into them, engage in them now, not later. If you could fast forward to the end of your into your life, your future self would say to spend your time and your money on eternal things. I've sat with households that would say that. And we tend to be navel gazers at our ages, whatever age we are at, and live for the here and now. But if your future self could tell you, your future self would say, invest your time and your money into things that are eternal. That begins with, if you've been blessed with children, it begins with discipling them and investing into those next generations. Because this generation did not know the Lord and did what was right in their own eyes, which was evil in the sight of the Lord, we see these consequences resulted from it. God brought judgment upon the people by giving them over to their enemies, verses 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, because that's what plunderers do, they plunder. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, 
and they were in terrible distress. As we've been journeying through Scripture, it should never surprise us when the Lord's anger, uh, when, when the Lord has anger towards sin. We've seen it throughout Scripture. We see it in the New Testament at the cross of Christ, for sure. If you're a parent, your anger and frustration toward your child's sin and rebellion, I would hope, is rooted in love. It is rooted in, listen, I know that pride and self-reliance that I see in you, it will lead to nowhere good or godly. Now, you can't change their heart, right? If you're a parent from toddler all the way up, you've tried to reach into them physically and shape and transform that heart, right? Didn't go well for you, probably. Didn't, hasn't gone well for me. I've tried. Probably continue to try in the next few years. It, won't, uh, it doesn't go well. But what we can do is we can plant seeds. We can water that soil. We can pray. And we can trust God for the growth. We can trust God that God is the one who can supernaturally step in and transform and shape and renew. If you're a parent who loves, it's not like you see your child um, kind of being passive toward the things of God and you're like, meh, it's okay. It doesn't engage you like that. It engages you with love because love drives you to care. It drives you to engage. And so all of that is just a mere reflection of our Father in heaven. And so the Lord engages here. He engages in allowing the enemy to overtake them. It's that C.S. Lewis quote that says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Author Doug Moo said this, Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. It's the natural consequence of sin. It's reflecting and rejecting the things of God. Paul talks about the same thing in Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their worship and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Or you could say in the, in the context of the book of Judges, they might have known about God, but they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord in relationship. Verse 24, Therefore, because of that, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Some call this the passive wrath of God. Meaning the Lord doesn't have to actively bring judgment upon someone because the consequences of their sin are doing it on its own. They're shooting themselves in the foot. They're reaping what they're sowing. They're bearing the weight and consequences of sin, which is coming out of a heart that doesn't know the Lord. In the story of the prodigal son, we see this. The father can't stop the son from running and chasing after a life of sin. And yet you see the father's heart, don't you? I'm so grateful the story doesn't stop at that. But you see the, at, the, at the running away, but you see the father's heart when that son returns. And the father rejoices. The father doesn't go, well, we'll give it six months and see if this happens. We'll see if you're really, if you're really um, repentant. No, he recognizes that right away. And he rejoices and he celebrates because the son has returned home. So verse 14 told us the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Then we jump to verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. We kind of will see this cycle of the judges. Judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges 
for they hoard after other gods and bow down to them. They, turned, they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So we see this, this judge's cycle over and over. Sin, repent, sin, wash, rinse, repeat, just over and over, right? God punished them for their, uh, for their, uh, for their sin, allowed enemies to come in. The people cry out for help. The Lord hears them, brings a judge. We repent. We follow the judge. Judge dies. Oh, who cares about that? And we go back to living for ourselves. It's just like this cycle, round and round it went. So while we see the judgment and the consequences for sin in this cycle, we also see the grace of God that took pity on his people. In the, when they were enslaved in Egypt, he heard their groaning. Here, he hears their groaning and he responds because he loves them. God will not forsake his people. His promises in Genesis 12 that one day all the nations will be blessed through this family. One day a Savior will come, Jesus, who will step on the serpent's head. That promise, he will be faithful to complete it. He will not allow sin or anything else to stand in the way of that promise. As one commentary said about the judge's cycle, astonishingly, God's compassion for his people extends deeper than the failure of his people even when those failures are self-inflicted. The ultimate judge and savior Jesus represents this grace in its ultimate form, interrupting the ongoing cycle of sin in the lives of his people throughout time and throughout the world. There is no sin, no failure, no act of unfaithfulness that is beyond the reach of Christ's redemptive love. Having received from God such undeserved assurances of forgiveness and reconciliation, we are now called to respond with wholehearted obedience to Him and to extend His grace to others. The hero of the story again is Jesus, who breaks the cycle of sin and selfishness in our lives, who comes to reconcile us to our Creator, who through Him we are a new creation. The old is gone. And now we're given the message of reconciliation as if God is making His appeal through us. So cross point this week, may we as a church, not just parents here, but just as a church, be a people who show and tell of the good news, who pass on our faith to the next generation. People driven to reach other people so the generations may know, so they may know and not just hear about it, but so they may know personally the love and the hope and the salvation found in Jesus alone. Let's stand and worship. Let's sing this together. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes to the one who is reigning over us. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes to the one who's reigning over us, for he is overcome. Fill the skies, fill the skies with the song, as heaven sings along to glorify the sun. Who is like you? 
that you'd be glorified in how we give and in what we give, Lord. I pray that uh, you would help us to, as we give, just to see a bigger picture of what's going on here, Lord, of how you're making disciples, not only at Crosspoint, but outside of Crosspoint through mission efforts. And, and so help us store up treasure in heaven, God. Help us to give cheerfully. And as we worship, as we close in singing, that we'd, we'd give cheerfully. I pray that you'd be glorified in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
says this we will not hide these truths from our children we will tell the next generation 
about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob and he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. So this week, be on mission as you tell of the next generation, of the glorious God that we serve and worship in your households, at school, in your activities, as a way of life. Live showing and telling for the next generation to know. Pray for somebody before you leave. God bless. See you back next Sunday.